Welcome to Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. If you have been following this podcast series, then you have probably come to appreciate context, literary, historical, and social context. It makes a whole lot of difference. In this episode, we will look at a few verses of what I call skim-over material, material that modern readers tend to skim over because it doesn't mean that much to us. And we will look at one well-known episode, The Calling of the First Disciples, which comes across as rather strange to our modern Western ears. But when put in its historical and literary contexts, this skim-over material becomes very relevant and significant. And the calling of the first disciples makes a whole lot more sense. And we begin to realize that this material sets up the rest of the subversive story that is the Gospel of Matthew. The material in this final section of chapter 4 is so rich that although I had originally planned to cover all of it in one episode, I have had to break it up into parts A and B. In other words, this episode has been cut short for the sake of the elect. For those who didn't get that joke, see Matthew twenty-four twenty-two. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 8A, of parody and subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Let's start with Matthew 4, 12-17. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This scene opens with the news that John the baptizer has been arrested. We are not given the details yet, although we will get them later. If you know the story of John's actual arrest in Matthew, you may think that it was over a mere personal insult of one Herod Antipas known in Matthew as King Herod, one of the sons of King Herod that we encountered in chapter 2. Without getting too far ahead, however, I will simply assert at this point that John's arrest was, in fact, political, not just personal. I will make the argument when we get to that point in the story, but we should take note here that Matthew doesn't bother to go into the details at this point. So the audience of the story only has his activity in the previous passage to go on as to why he has been arrested. In other words, the original audience would have assumed that John's activity 
narrated so far is sufficient to be a threat to the powers that be. If you missed episode 6, go back to that one and find out why he was such a threat. So Jesus withdraws to Galilee. But what kind of withdrawal is this? Galilee is the region that Herod Antipas actually rules. Jesus goes to the region that Herod Antipas rules and starts proclaiming John's message. John's message of the dawning of the new society, or literally, the kingdom of heaven, or even more literally, the kingdom of the heavens. This is a strange withdrawal. It seems more like an aggressive advance. Jesus goes to one of the smaller towns in Galilee, Capernaum, not as small as many of the tiny villages in Galilee, which only had a few hundred inhabitants, but not one of the major cities such as Sepphoris or Caesarea either. This is significant because the major cities were where the wealthy and powerful lived. These cities siphoned the wealth of the smaller towns and rural areas through rents, debt, and taxes, keeping those areas in perpetual poverty. Jesus locates himself in those areas among the poor. As we will see, his work will be in small towns and villages and rural areas. There he will organize the peasants, the working class, as well as the marginal outcasts. Matthew tells us that Capernaum is by the sea. The sea referred to here is the Sea of Galilee. A funny thing about that sea, the Sea of Galilee is actually a lake. It's actually a freshwater lake. Only the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and John call it a sea. Outside of these Gospels, in the ancient literature, including the Gospel of Luke, it is called a lake. We will see, as we proceed through the story, that the benefit of calling this body of water a sea lies in the symbolic literary connotation of the word. It has connotations of empire. You see, the sea was the body of water that held the Roman Empire together, namely the Mediterranean Sea. And in the highly symbolic Jewish resistance literature of the time, the sea was where empires came from. Both the books of Daniel and Revelation depict beasts that represent empires rising up out of the sea. From Israel's point of view, the recent Greek and Roman empires that dominated and oppressed it, in fact, did come from across the sea. As we will see later on in Matthew, the sea will be the place of mythic struggle between Jesus and the empire. Placing Capernaum by a sea serves to emphasize the Roman imperial context in which Jesus begins his ministry. Matthew then moves on to quote a passage from Isaiah which identifies Galilee as Galilee of the Gentiles. Of course, this passage from Isaiah does not literally foretell the coming of Jesus, but it is literarily appropriate to his coming, not only because in its original context 
it promises liberation from a foreign empire, but also because it provides an apt description of the setting of Jesus at this point in Matthew. While some commentators have surmised that the identification of Galilee as Galilee of the Gentiles serves merely to emphasize that there were many Gentiles in Galilee and that Jesus' work will be among both Jews and Gentiles, I think this identification of Galilee as Galilee of the Gentiles not only emphasizes the presence of Gentiles, but the domination by Gentiles, namely the Romans in that region. You see, the larger cities were not only populated with wealthy people who prospered from the sweat and labor of the rural and small-town peasants. They were also mostly Gentile, sent there by Rome. They were an occupation population. They were settlers, as it were. The road by the sea mentioned in the Isaiah quote is likely a formal name for an ancient trade route which the Romans paved. It connected Galilee with important cities in that part of the Roman Empire. So a lot of these terms and phrases, which mean little to the modern reader, gave context to the original audience of this gospel, placing this story in the context of the Roman Empire. After the Isaiah quote, Matthew tells us that from that point on, Jesus begins proclaiming the dawning of the new society by preaching, the kingdom of heaven has come near. In other words, Jesus has departed to an area well connected by a main trade route to the rest of the empire and ruled by Herod, the client king of Rome who arrested John and starts to proclaim John's message. This withdrawal turns out to be a charge, an advance, the beginning of Jesus' campaign for the new society. In part B of this episode, I will provide a fuller explanation of why I use the phrase the new society to dynamically translate the term kingdom of heaven. But for now, I'll simply say that the kingdom of heaven is the new society lived out by the community of those who follow the teachings about the new society. By following these teachings, which we will get throughout this gospel, the people can create a brand new egalitarian society. This message taken from John the Baptizer is Jesus' initial proclamation. It will frame all of his teaching from here onward. His gospel is the good news of the new society. Let's move on to the next few verses in chapter 4, verses 18 to 22. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus' call of the disciples might sound strange to us, but that is because we tend to read these stories literally rather than symbolically and because we don't get the references. This calling of the disciples is told by the author using symbols and references that the original audience would have understood. 
First of all, the calling of the disciples looks a lot like the calling of Elisha by Elijah. 1 Kings 19 tells the story of that call. Elijah calls Elisha as he is walking by, while Elisha is engaged in his normal daily work, plowing a field in that case. Elijah calls him to follow by throwing his mantle on him. The call is sudden and dramatic, just as the call of the first disciples in Matthew. Elijah and Elisha were prophets who were constant thorns in the side of the monarchy. Jesus and his disciples will be thorns in the side of the authorities in their day. Secondly, Jesus calls them away from their occupation of fishing in the sea. Now, this occupation might sound quaint and picturesque to us, but remember the word sea has imperial overtones. The occupation of fishing in Galilee in the first century was actually a type of serfdom to the empire. The fish were claimed by the emperor. The fishermen had to purchase licenses or contracts to fish and then had to give a portion of their catch over to the authorities in return for keeping the rest. It was very much like sharecropping or tenant farming, but with fish. While peasants may have preferred not to work for the hated Roman occupiers, working for the Romans was preferable to starving, so many poor landless peasants turned to fishing. Jesus calls his first disciples away from this serfdom to empire. The call is dramatic and sudden to emphasize the moment that they are set free. Jesus makes the call and they leave their status as virtual slaves of the empire. The call of the first disciples is a dramatic story of liberation. Now, you may be appalled that James and John would leave their father in the boat like that, but two points need to be taken into consideration. First of all, there were probably other fishermen there with their father since fishermen often formed collectives to accomplish the work. Secondly, the symbolism here is important. Remember, we are reading a symbolic text. Jesus will later teach that his message will tear apart households. And even later in the story, he will teach them to call no one on earth father. The Mediterranean society of the first century was constructed through a pyramid of households, each headed by a father. One hallmark of Jesus' message in Matthew is opposition to the patriarchal hierarchy of the society. Call no one on earth father. At a symbolic level, this call of the first disciples may demonstrate the rejection of the authority of the patriarchal households, a basic part of the structure of their society, which served to keep peasants in their place. This may not be full-on modern feminism, but it is a rejection of the patriarchal households because they are oppressive and fundamentally opposed to the ideals of the new society. As we proceed through the gospel, however, I will argue that Matthew has feminist messaging. The rejection of the patriarchs will be understood as liberating not just for peasants in general, but for women in particular. (laughs) 
Jesus calls the first disciples by saying that he will make them fishers of people. This call to be fishers of people may be a call to gather people into the new society. A central aspect of Jesus' work will be to gather in the lost. The lost are the poor and hungry masses who have been neglected by their leaders and those who are socially marginalized in society. Most societies, including our own, have populations that are lost, as it were. And in the first century Mediterranean world, it was the vast majority of the population. So Jesus may be calling his disciples to the task of gathering in the people for the movement. But there may be another meaning intended by the phrase fishers of people or fishers of men. It can mean snagging or hooking oppressive elites. That's the way the prophets tend to use the metaphor. Ezekiel 29, 3-4 reads, I am against you, Pharaoh king of Egypt. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your channels stick to your scales. I will draw you up from your channels. Amos 4, 1-2 reads, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on Mount Samaria, who oppress the poor and crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring something to drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness, the time is surely coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. Put against this background in the prophetic literature, it seems that Jesus is calling these men away from serfdom to the elites of the empire and to the work of prophetically hooking the elites, holding them accountable for what they have done. So when he calls them from their job of fishing for the empire to the work of fish-hooking the elites, the irony is not lost on those familiar with the prophetic texts. It may be that the author intended a double meaning for fishers of men. The prophetic literature would seem to indicate that it means hooking elites, bringing them to judgment, which we will see Jesus does throughout and by the end of this story. But Jesus also gathers in the lost. And that is what we see next as Jesus launches his campaign. That will be the topic of the next episode. My name is Bert Newton, and this has been episode 8A of Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.